This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our master cheesemaker program is one of the only two in the world. So it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. This is our 312th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guests are the co-founders and couple behind the Jacques Pepin Foundation, and I will introduce them fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to live your legacy. What do you or I want the world to say about us when we're gone? What's most important? What's our message? What would we ideally like to be remembered for? And what impact do we want to leave on others? These are questions to think about in our finite time here so we can take action to achieve what we desire and leave the legacy behind that will make us feel most proud. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really excited to have my two guests joining me. They are Claudine Pepin. She is the co-founder and president of the Jacques Pepin Foundation and the only daughter of iconic chef, TV host, and cookbook author Jacques Pepin and Raleigh Wiesen, the co-founder and executive director of the Jacques Pepin Foundation and the husband of Claudine. In 2016, Claudine and Raleigh created the Jacques Pepin Foundation, supporting culinary and life skills training for individuals with barriers to employment through community kitchens. Without further ado, hi, Claudine and Raleigh. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sari. It's so nice to be here and almost nice to be almost in person, hopefully next time. Yes. In, hi. Yes. In person through the computers. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, I'm thrilled to have you guys joining me and and just to talk all about your careers and everything happening today. Uh, so what, um, what I like to do with my guests is always go back a bit to their backgrounds and find out well, how did you get into the industry? Um, Claudine, and I kind of have a little uh, idea maybe of what sparked your interest, but um, <laughs> maybe you take us back a, a bit to to growing up and what you studied and then how you fell into your career. Well, um, I, I, of course, came into the world with um, a pearl spoon in my mouth filled with caviar, not knowing that that was an expensive thing, but just that I loved it. I've always, I've always, always loved food. And one thing growing up that I was absolutely certain about is that I was never going to do what my parents did. And I went to school for uh, international relations with a focus on European military systems and studied in Brussels, interned at NATO, which is a very fancy way of saying I made photocopies um, and really, really wanted to go into in that direction. The problem was, is as a dual citizen, there was very much a a very low glass ceiling to doing that. And honestly, nobody was very happy. And my dad did this thing with Jess Jackson from Kendall Jackson Winery and invited me to go along and to shoot some shows, which later became series and so on. And everybody was so happy and everybody was having so much fun. And Eventually, Jess offered me um, an internship and and studying to work in the wine industry for him. So I started working and absolutely loving representing all of Kendall Jackson Winery's wines. And my territory was Manhattan, which meant for the first time I could take my father out. So that's really how I came into the industry, sort of kicking and screaming, but um, but ultimately really loving every minute of it and so glad to be 
on the other side of the kitchen door. And it's also how I met my husband. So, you know. <laughs> yes, I wanted, I want, I don't know how you guys met. So I wanted to find that out. But uh, tell me, or Raleigh, why don't you take us back a little bit to your background? Sure. Well, uh, for me, I always say, and in, I guess in some ways it's similar to Claudine's story, that I didn't choose food service, but food service chose me instead. I took uh, what turns out to be a, a relatively traditional path to becoming an executive chef. I got a degree in literature and journalism. And then there was, uh, you know, no job waiting for me at the end of the of that path. And I realized when I was graduating from college that I needed to do something to make money and survive. And so I started working in some kitchens at that point. I, I'm going to interrupt my husband because what he's also not saying is that he's a graduate of Carnegie Mellon. So, you know, he's a dummy, just like everybody yeah. else's family. <laughs> <laughs> And so I started working in restaurants and, um, and realized that I, what I really wanted to do was travel. And so I, I set out on a, a long trip. Eventually, it, it took me uh, two years to go all the way around the world. And when I landed back in uh, New York City, I had, I had figured out that I actually loved working in restaurants and uh, loved the energy and loved the excitement and, and loved the passion that, that restaurant and hospitality people had towards their craft and, and started working professionally in New York. In, 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 in what capacity in New York? I'm sorry. Well, uh, so I was a line cook when I first arrived in the, in the mid-90s. I, I worked at uh, the Rainbow Room and Gramercy Tavern and worked for some other high-profile chefs and uh, worked for Rocco Despirito and, and uh, really started to, to uh, get into that fine dining set. In, interestingly, at that time, it seemed like once you had, had worked in one of those fine dining restaurants, everybody knew who you were. It was kind of a small community at that point. And uh, moved around quite a bit while I was in the city and, and worked my way up. And you know, eventually uh, met Claudine while I was working at a restaurant called Jacques Brasserie on the Upper East Side in New York. Not that Jacques, a different Jacques, but, uh, but Claudine came in as a representative of Dom Perignon Champagne and uh, came in with one of my regulars who loved to call me up the week before and say, hey, I've got some really high profile folks coming in and we're going to drink these really great wines. Here's the list. Can you write us a menu? And I was like, holy crap, Claudine Pepin is bringing in Dom Perignon Champagne and all of this other stuff and I have to come up with a menu. And so that was, uh, that was how we met. But you thought I was my mo my grandmother. Well, it was a little confusing when right. when it was introduced that Madame Papin was coming in. I was like, "Really, Madame Papin?" <laughs> wow, and that's uh, I love that that the connection was through a, another Jacques too, <laughs> which I is actually pretty funny. And that night was it, it was a funny night because what happened was is I was asked these weren't restaurant people; they were more socialites, which I know nothing about. If you're not in the restaurant industry, you could be the best actor in the whole world. And I'm like, yeah, I think I saw you at 11 Madison Park one day, but I, I'm not good with that. And so they were wonderful people, lovely, lovely people. But there was one woman who was there from the French tourism board. So we were hanging out and talking about all the restaurants in town, which was great. And, um, and at the end of the night, this really tall, gorgeous chef came out and he said a few words and, and talked about the menu. So I stood up and I gave a little speech that was similar to all the speeches I give for all of the chefs. And, um, that's really how we met. And I took him out. Our first date was a couple days later, I guess, at Le Bernardin. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> One of my accounts. So I was able to do that. I love it. I love it. And you, yeah. And match, match made in heaven. Um, yeah, that's, I, I love that. Um, so, so then moving for moving once you guys are now dating or you get married, what, how did your careers uh, progress too? as um, Raleigh? I think you, 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 you started teaching at, at one point. Yeah, so I teach at Johnson & Wales University here in Providence now. I've been there for 11 years. Uh, not too long after Claudine and I met uh, was 
uh, 9-11 happened in New York. And, and obviously, that was a very traumatic experience for many of us. And uh, tragically, so many people lost their lives. And you know, we, we feel so horrible still today about the loss of Windows on the World. You know, it's one thing to say the World Trade Center went down. We had lots of friends at Windows on the World and uh, lots of great cooks that went to work that day that that didn't deserve that at all. But um, I digress slightly. But the you know that that trauma that we all lived through in in two thousand and one sort of inspired us to say, you know what, maybe we should take a break from New York. And we ended up uh, moving out to the West Coast and spent a couple of years in Portland, Oregon, where the food scene was just amazing. Yeah. And, the farmers markets were just amazing and this con- like, you know the concept of farm to table in portland when we, when i was working there as a chef was kind of like well why would you do anything other than buy your product from amazing farmers and so that really informed uh, you know a lot of my thinking about um, the connection between agriculture and chefs and hospitality and was a really, really great experience. And then uh, we moved on from there to Denver, where we spent uh, a good chunk of time, yeah, five, 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 six years five, six in, years. in yeah. Denver. And that's where our daughter, Shori, was born. Or actually, our no, daughter, Shori, was, was born in, uh, in Portland. But that's really where she grew up and started, started going to school while we were there. And um, I, in uh, Denver, I worked primarily for Hyatt Hotels and Resorts. I was at the, the Hyatt Regency as the banquet chef there in a hotel that had 1,100 rooms and 60,000 square feet of banquet space. That is wow. a pretty darn big operation. We were we had many meal periods that we were serving thousands of meals, and w- which was pretty fascinating in a way. It was very different from the, the fine dining that I had been doing when I was in New York or the boutique restaurant that I was running when I was in Portland. All of a sudden, the, the game was... How do you make 750 pounds of mashed potatoes and only have a half a hotel pan left after you've served 2,000 people? And uh, and th- you know that's its own trick. You should see you should see the spreadsheets he used to do to get it down to the ounce and quarter ounce and half ounce of like how much risotto to make and how much it, it's really remarkable. I think he um, did a whole bunch of stuff that they're still using formulaically that they're still using today. It's 0.91 ounces of risotto per person, by the way. Just in case. Thank you. I was hoping you would tell us. In case you want to go for a, a, a risotto for 500, it, right. it's, it's 0.91 ounces per person. As a side. But this is why you became a teacher. You have a lot of knowledge. Well, the, the teaching thing, you know, the being a teacher has been a wonderful, wonderful ride, and I really enjoy it a lot. And it's great to be able to inspire the next generation of chefs and to, and to show them the wide variety of pathways in hospitality. And I, I, I really feel like that's one of the special things that I can bring to my students is, you know, I tell them when we start off a class, I say, look, you know, any job that you think that you would like to get this summer, I've probably done something almost exactly like that. It, anything from fine dining to a little, you know, one man diner to working in a big hotel. And if you have questions about what makes the most sense for you, let me help you make that decision. And then in addition, you know, as I've been on that path as a teacher, I've really dug into many of my passions as far as food is concerned. I I spent a lot, a long time teaching classical French cuisine, which was a big part of my training and, and learned a lot of the history behind that. And then moved into sustainability, where I, I really feel like, you know, understanding the food system and making choices that allow the food system to be sustainable for the long term is critically important. And chefs and anyone in food service and even individuals who purchase food, anyone who purchases food has the opportunity to influence the system for good and to influence the system so that our food system can actually serve everyone in a just way and protect our environment at the same time. And and really that's super exciting for me at this point. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's incredible. And, And you're right. There are so many paths that chefs or just anyone in the industry can go on um, that that people might not think about right away. So uh, it's yeah, and your experience is vast. <laughs> it really is. Uh, 
So Claudine, take tell us a little about working with with your dad, and because you've done you've done a bunch of cooking TV shows together, and I know I usually see you guys uh, at the Aspen Classic, and uh, uh, you know doing your demos, and um, quite a duo. <laughs> yeah, um, in fact, we the last demo we did was the day before uh, Christmas Eve on board Oceana Cruises. Ooh, we fun. did a wonderful demo. But um, we have been working together, oh, I don't know, since I was 17, 18. The first demo that we did together was, in fact, in Aspen. We He asked me if I wanted to do a television series with him in San Francisco. And he said, we'll just, you know, we'll do the series and we'll shoot three shows a day and we'll stay at a nice hotel. And he had me really at hotel because I was living in Boston at the time and it was going to be over the summer and I didn't have air conditioning. And I was like, well, if we're in a hotel. I bet there's air conditioning. So I said, the room yes. service too. <laughs> that was, that was it. I remember thinking that. And, um, and we had, we had a tremendous time. We really did. Um, and we've worked together ever since when we did the shows initially, people thought that I knew much more than I did. Uh, people think the same thing about my daughter, our daughter, that she must know how to cook. She doesn't for the record, but, um, they thought I knew so much more and they're like, Oh, you're faking you're this. And I'm like, Nope, I'm just getting private cooking classes with this guy and I don't have to do the dishes afterwards. So, you know, it's pretty good. And then as we continued, we did Cooking with Claudine, Encore with Claudine, Jacques Pépin Celebrates, all of which won James Beard Awards. Um, and then we, I was a guest, and then later, of course, Shori was a guest, as was Raleigh, on several more of the series that we did. Of course, he dropped me for a while for an older woman named Julia, but um, then we got back <laughs> to her and we did. Continued our partnership, which was really fun, and it's it's been it's been really rewarding to grow together and to watch how open my father is to food. I have never met someone who is more to this day still more curious and open to what is exciting and what is new, albeit very pragmatic. And when it comes to his own his own plate of food, he does tend to keep it on the simple, clean and and focused side. He doesn't like a lot of jumbled stuff on a plate. He, he thinks that's kind of a waste of your palate. I tend to agree with that. Um, but it's it's been just really re rewarding working with him and and watching how he influences people and how excited people get just to be with him. It's been wonderful. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm someone who's, yeah, I'm, I'm the, I guess the recipient of that or someone who's, I've, I've been to um, some of your demos. I've seen your shows. I've been in, in with Jacques. I've been to um, several talks he's done, panels uh, with a lot with uh, La Dame Escoffier. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's incredible. And yeah, anytime you see his name as like, you know, who's speaking, who's involved, people sign up because he's a legend. So um, I, I get that. And let's segue into then the Jacques Pepin Foundation, which you started in 2016. So what inspired uh, the creation of it? What, what's its mission? And, and, and how, how has it grown over, over the past several years? Well, it was inspired in Aspen. You know, when you're walking around, and you see all of those statues, the bronze statues of like everything. There's bronze yeah. statues of kids and birds <laughs> and of everything. And yeah. I, <laughs> I really, and I'm I, with I, you. I'm with you. And, and I was like, we should have a bronze statue of my father. And he's like, oh, we're going to make that happen. And then we started talking about legacy and what that means and doing something like that for him. And decided that we wanted to do something for him while he was very much alive, as opposed to waiting until he wasn't alive, you know. Yeah. And um, and so that's really how the foundation itself was born. 
We do have a bronze of him, which is done by the Legacy Fund, which is a little bit different. And that is in Stonington, Connecticut. And it's it's really a, a great thing to go see. And the farm that it's on is really wonderful too. And that's a that's a different show. But in talking to him about what he wanted his legacy to be, he considers his biggest legacy to be a teacher. And so we started figuring out how do we teach? And Raleigh, I have to say, has done, he, he really does do the lion's share of, of the foundation work. But we came up with a concept of working with existing community kitchens and supporting them in every way possible, financially and with materials that we could provide and also with materials that maybe we could source that they couldn't source. And by that, I mean, early on, we would ask any any organization that gets in touch with us, we send them what we call a library, which is a bunch of my dad's books and, and, and works and so on, just to get them started. Because it might be 20 students in a kitchen in a basement of, you know, of a church or something and, and very little resources. So at least we know they have books and recipes and so on to work with. Well, this, this particular organization, they said, you know, we have resources. We have, we have so many things, but so many of our students are homeless and, and really trying to, to, to carve a better way for themselves, but they can't wash their uniforms. So what we really need is a commercial washer and dryer. And Raleigh, without missing a beat, said, great, we'll figure that out. And he contacted, ultimately, I think it was Whirlpool that said yes. And lo and behold, within six weeks, 10 weeks, they had a commercial washer and dryer because that's what they needed. And and for me, that's kind of the whole point initially of, of working it this way is figuring out what somebody else's needs are, as opposed to saying what we could have said, which is, well, we're the Jacques Pépin Foundation, we're certain that we know better than you, which is not true, right? Any any organization knows their own people. So, so being able to help in the way that they want help and need help has been completely and fantastically gratifying and has also, of course, grown. And I'll let Raleigh take over with, we're doing a video recipe cookbook, we have... Um, class done by Ruby, R-U-X-V-E. So the, the um, online, online organization, a uh, whole class that is a certified class. And so you take it from there. See, I started, you finish. <laughs> well, I actually want to take just a, like a half a step back because one of the things that was interesting was that when we, when Claudine and I decided that we would start a foundation in her father's name, I started, I went to him and we went to him and we said, you know, Jacques, there's there's lots of things that we could do with a foundation in in your name. I mean, you know, we could think about childhood nutrition and school school lunch programs, or we could think about scholarships for high school students who are in culinary programs, or we could help people who have gone to culinary school go to Europe to finish their training, or we could help people who just got out of jail learn how to cook. And Jacques said, that's the one. That's what we should do. People who, for no fault of their own, have paid their due to society. They've gone to jail. They've been released. And now they need to get back into society. Hospitality is a great place for them. And we can help them learn the skills that they need in order to get a job in food service. And that was just amazing because exactly at that time, I had been volunteering at the Rhode Island Food Bank in their community kitchen culinary training program, spending some time there. And they had sort of shown me this path of the fact that there are all of these community kitchens all around the country. We, we are aware of about 150 of them. We actually feel like there's probably 250 across the country because they, they keep showing up. They keep finding their way to us. And we actually support a network of community kitchens now. And so many of them are just trying to help people who want to do well, who want to get back into society, get the skills that they need in order to get a job and sort of reclaim their lives. And for us, you know, learning to cook is so valuable. 
not only do you gain skills that allow you to get a job in food service, but it also gives the individual a sense of purpose. It gives the individual the opportunity to feed their family better and to feel confident and strong to help people save money because they can do more with less and improve their health. You know, learning to cook is just such an incredibly valuable thing. And, and we've gotten away from it in so many ways in, in our country. I mean, Jacques has never stopped teaching, but, you know, schools don't have home ec programs anymore or culinary programs. Kids aren't learning how to cook. In fact, they're not even learning how to eat with their families. And, and so we just feel like culinary education is so important. It deserves its place among critical skills for individuals. And, you know, helping people reclaim their lives is something that we can, you know, jump out of bed every day for it and feel good about. And it's not just, of course, previously incarcerated. It's anybody who's going through a hard time. I mean, and there are so many wonderful organizations that that um, that we're able to work with. So uh, women's organizations, yeah. immigrants, people who have been homeless or suffered with substance abuse, you know, community kitchens are, are serving all of those populations. Yes, yes, um, it's it's terrific. Uh, so, talk about the the video recipe book because uh, I've been I've been in your different volumes one to three, and um, you have amazing content. You have um, so many different chefs involved, and it's uh, for you know it's it's a combo between having the recipes and a a, a book of recipes and having a video subscription of of being able to, to watch it. So I think it's, I think it's amazing. Um, how did you come up with it? And, and how are you, how are you putting all these videos together, this whole series? Well, first of all, we, we started, we had to pivot a lot, you know, with COVID and the, and the pandemic and so on. And chefs, as you well know, Sherry, are so generous. When you walk into any executive chef's office and you're going to find 45 invitations to donate to for somebody's school for somebody's charity for somebody's organization for somebody's and chefs are notoriously notoriously generous and what we thought that we would do the price for the membership is forty dollars we really wanted to keep it very 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 approachable it's forty dollars at to at the beginning but of course there are different tiers and different levels that you can be involved in but to have access to every single recipe past present and well if you if it's annual so future if you continue to be a member it's forty dollars and so every chef that we called they're all home doing not so much and video right. teaching themselves cook I'm like, could you just do a recipe that is inspired by Jacques or a recipe that you love that you just say, hey, thanks to the Jacques Pépin Foundation for inviting me to do this. We'll take care of the editing. We'll take care of all of the rest of it. Just submit submit the um, the video and the recipe. And they all said yes. They also, without, without skipping a beat, from everyone from Ann Burrell to Danielle Ballou to Gail Simmons to, you know, you name it. Um, they, they all said, absolutely. Why would I not do this? It'll take me 15 minutes, shoot it on an iPhone. So we were able to do that. And we have a tremendous team that worked just to create enough synergy so that everybody, so everybody's video, however different they are, because some are completely different. You know, you have some chefs that are very formal that are dressed all in white and there's like nothing in the kitchen and it's absolutely perfect. And there you go. And, and that's great. And then you have others that they're in their home kitchen, like searching through cabinets to find something else to add to the sauce. So, you know, it, it was wonderful and it's really fantastic that it, it runs the gambit and it makes it very educational, but also really fun. And I, I will, I, I will be a bit of a braggart because Raleigh probably won't say it, but um, the video recipe book was a finalist for a Webby award. So oh. We're, awesome. We're Congratulations. Incredibly proud of that. So you can, you can, I don't know what I missed. Go ahead. Well, the interesting thing about that video recipe book is that it was directly linked to what Jacques had decided to do. I mean, we were again, we were again inspired by him because, you know, when the order came down in, in March of 2020, that everybody had to stay home and everything was going to shut down out of fear of COVID. 
Jacques was like, huh, I'm going to be stuck at home. Well, maybe I'll make a few videos for, for, or for Facebook. In fact, Claudine was the one who said like, hey, why, while you're home, why don't you just shoot a couple of videos there in your home kitchen and, and I'll put them up on Facebook. And so um, when he started doing that and we, we started publishing them, first they became wildly popular very quickly. And then we also realized that all of our chef friends were doing the same thing. And we said, oh, well, you know, if everybody's doing this, maybe we, need, we should be capturing this content. And then as Claudine said, we, you know, I, I like to say we have everybody from Jose Andreas to Andrew Zimmern and everybody in between. And, and it's just been a great opportunity to, to capture the best of the best and, and, and to, you know, raise up some names that you might not have heard of before and give some people a platform. And, you know, we even actually have uh, community kitchen graduates in the video recipe book and, just extraordinary for them to see their name right next to Thomas Keller's. I mean, it's it's kind of extraordinary to have that just juxtaposition. Food is the great equalizer. But as we started to collect all this content, first we had to mobilize a, a production team and a and a video editing team, and we have a great web designer, and and we really have incredibly talented people that uh, work for us and that love Jacques and love the mission of the foundation. And uh, we started to put all these pieces together. And then we said, well, well, what are we, what are we going to do with it? Like, okay, so now we've got, you know, 50 recipes that were produced by the best of the best chefs. How do we get it out there? And the, the answer that we came up with was to create the Jacques Pepin Foundation membership, as, as Claudine mentioned. And, and if, you, if you join as a member, we give you access to all of these video recipes. And so it's actually, it's quite inexpensive by comparison. Right now we have hundred and well, 150 recipes that are in the book and we have uh, 15 more that are going to get released in March. And you get access to all of them for, you know, the, the annual membership of $40 and, you know, a bunch of other little special things that we, that we send out to folks who join. So it's really been a fun ride and it's been great to connect with all these chefs and people are like Claudine said, chefs are so generous. They've all, they all stepped up and they all want to support Jacques and they all pay homage to him. And, and it's really great content. Yes, no, absolutely right. They are so generous and it was uh, smart, very smart for you guys to do that. Cause you're right. I mean, uh, being, being here at home in the pandemic and putting on Instagram, all of a sudden you have Daniel Balut cooking and you have Thomas Keller cooking and everyone was cooking at their home kitchen. So you guys, you know, to collect that and get these chefs involved is, is wonderful. Um, there is a ton of content there. So it's, I think it's, I think it's a good value for your $40. Um, yeah, we're, we're super proud of it. We actually, it actually feels like we're a little bit ahead of the curve in the sense that, you know, um, people love cookbooks and people love videos and this is sort of like a, a kind of a cool blend between that that uh, coffee table restaurant chef inspired cookbook and that video subscription that you already have. Uh, you know, and and in our case, you can actually watch the video and read the recipe, or print it out, or search for appetizers, or search for a particular ingredient, and. Uh, you know, just lots of ways to navigate through all the material. And, and we expect it to continue to grow. Like I said, we're, we at, we're at 150 chefs now. And I, I think we're going to keep adding 50 or 60 chefs every year for the foreseeable future. And, and eventually that, that $40 will get you an awful lot of recipes from a, a lot of uh, marquee names. Amazing. And a lot of several recipes I know from Jacques too. Um, so you, oh, yeah. get, you, get every, you get it all. Uh, let's, um, before we take a break, uh, let me ask you my question from my, or from my last guest on episode 311. So I had on Mickey Bax and Steve Palmer, they're the co-founders of Ben's Friends, which is a national support group for people in the hospitality industry struggling with addiction. And Steve, he had a question uh, on behalf of himself. He said he just opened a French brasserie in Charleston. And so he wants to know, do you believe that French cuisine is making a comeback? Um. I would have to say that what's old is new. What's new is old. I think it, it, I think there's always a cycle. Um, and 
you know, what my grandmother was an organic farmer. She didn't know she was an organic farmer, but there were no herbicides or pesticides or anything else. So it was all organic farming. I think that for a while, French, the concept of French cuisine seems to be very old fashioned, but what, what remains and, and the foundation of it is that it offers a common lexicon. So wherever you were cooking in France, if you say make a mirepoix or a sauce blanche or whatever it was, everybody knew exactly what to do. And, and that's kind of incredible. And I think people are reminded of that now. Um, and having that concept of technique is very, very important. So I, I don't think that French cuisine in and of itself is going to go anywhere. And, and all sorts of home cooking is coming back in style. And most people think of French cuisine as like the Alain Ducasse of French cuisine. And the truth of it is, it's really, it's really the auberge is the French cuisine. So if he's opening up a brasserie, I mean, power to him. And, um, and I think it's going to do great. Yeah, I would, I would agree with everything that Claudine said, just because I'm smart and I'm her husband and I can't want to. But I would also say, you know, in a funny thing happened to French cuisine when, when Nouvelle Cuisine happened, led by Paul Bocuse back in the 60s and the 70s, all of a sudden there was this idea behind French cuisine that it was a little tiny bit of food that comes on a that came on a really big plate. And after you dropped a few hundred dollars, you still had to go out for a burger afterwards because you were, you were still going to be hungry. And, you know, I think it, I think that, um, that idea, you know, that idea got all the way into, you know, Warner brothers cartoons and Tom and Jerry, you know, it was that it was everywhere about the, the froofiness of French cuisine. And I think while, while on the one hand that empowered chefs because suddenly chefs had the ability to be the stars of their restaurant and, and it allowed them to become celebrities. I think it also pushed some people away and, and it was, you know, a source of inequality within the food system that there were these super high end fancy Michelin starred restaurants that, that only a few people could afford. And then there was everybody else. But I think, you know, it was actually Anthony Bourdain that said it best that the long-term enduring quality of French cuisine, as Claudine also said, is not fine dining. It's the brasseries, it's the bistros, it's the mom and pop auberge where good quality ingredients are harvested locally in season and maximized in flavor in relatively simple preparations. And I don't think that that style, you you can say, oh, French cuisine is coming back because Americans are rediscovering that idea of good quality ingredients harvested locally and prepared in a simple way that maximizes their quality. You can say that's bringing back French cuisine, but I think that 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 is just what cooking is going to be. The French were just the best at that. And so, so what we're doing now is reminding people of French cuisine. That was a very nice answer. Love your answers. (laughs) And on that note, let's take a little break and we will come back and we'll play my speed round, talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, Cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? Otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program. This rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and the program is only one of two in the world. Becoming a master cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese with intense requirements to succeed. Our Master Cheesemaker program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. 
Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guests today are Claudine Pepin, co-founder and president of the Jacques Pepin Foundation, and Raleigh Wiesen, the co-founder and executive director of the Jacques Pepin Foundation. So, Claudine and Raleigh, it is time for my speed round, which is my game. And what it is, is I I name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. So we get to see how compatible you both really are. Are you ready? Absolutely. Okay. Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Both. Oh, I have to answer now too. I absolutely both. Do I get to? Do I have to cook or do the dishes? I don't know. That that makes all the difference. That's that's between the two of you. <laughs> um, okay. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. You both. That's perfect. You both answer, and we'll we'll try to go through these quickly. Okay. How about um, indoor dining or alfresco dining? Alfresco. Definitely alfresco. During, especially during COVID, I don't care how cold it is. <laughs> How about wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Uh, all of the above, depending on the hour. All of the above, especially champagne. Okay, so far you guys are a good couple, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> how about taste, tasting menu or a la carte? Ooh, that's a tough one. I, I think it for me it depends on the chef. If I know the chef and he knows me or she knows me, then I'm happy to, to eat whatever they suggest. But I always feel so badly when when somebody says, oh, just cook for me. I'll eat whatever. And they, of course, give you a list of 27 things that they don't eat. But um, so right. if I don't know the chef and they don't know me, I would I would order a la carte. If it's a good friend who says, look, I want to cook for you and let me just do I know you well enough, then yes, I will happily do your tasting menu. And I think that food is always special, but sometimes it's a special experience that you want to be the main event. And in that case, it's great to have a tasting menu and to get to eat uh, Thomas Keller's or Daniel Baloud's foods or, or many, many other chefs. But most of the time, food is just food and it's there uh, not to be just fuel, but to be enjoyed and doesn't have to be too fancy. Got it. Okay. How about um, small plates or large plates? Both. Okay. Is it the first? allowed to have both. (laughs) I'm like, is it the first course or the second course? I'll start with a small (laughs) plate. I'll move to a bigger plate. I'm going to say small plates because I think that most portions in America are too large. And I think we should be thinking about reducing our portions. About communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Yeah, I'll sit at the communal table. I don't want to torture the chef. I feel they're working. That would be like <laughs> you're a writer, and somebody goes with yeah. you, and they put down their lunch in front of you, and they watch you write. Like that sounds terrible. Although we did have that dinner at Mini Bar in at Jose's place in Washington not too long ago, and that, that was, was yeah. really special. Yeah, but that All was right. so communal table except for Jose's restaurants. I got <laughs> it. <laughs> Okay, I have a, a few more. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Mm. Wow, such a such a weighty topic. Um, we don't have we don't have a whole show for that. That we could talk forty five minutes about that one. I know, but yeah, it's a tricky one. I'm gonna go with <laughs> tipping because I usually tip more than they add onto the bill. I'm going to go with tipping too. I thought that uh, 11 Madison Parks moved recently back to tipping away from yeah. all inclusive was an important uh, marker in this discussion. And I think, I think it just shows where restaurants are at. True. Yes. Um, okay. Cooking for Jacques or having Jacques cook for you? I actually really <laughs> like cooking for my dad. I mean, everybody's terrified to cook for him, but there's like three things he doesn't like. Don't give him anything with coconut or cinnamon or I don't know what the third one is, but I'm sure there's a third one. But um, he's so grateful when other people feed him. Yeah. Uh, 
So I, I like cooking for him. Cool. I'm, I'm, happy cook, I'm happy to cook for him, but uh, he hardly ever lets me. That's, <laughs> in fact, the very, the very first time I came to, to his house with Claudine, it was at Christmas time. And I got out of the car with a foie gras terrine in one hand and an apple pie in the other hand. And he said, you brought ha- food to my house? What are you, crazy? <laughs> Honey. Well, um, yeah. Well, I'd have any of you cook for me anytime. How about that? Okay. <laughs> I got three more. One of it, I picked uh, some of the Jacques, two of Jacques' recipes. How about baked pear or chocolate souffle? Today I'm going to say baked pear because I had the best pear um, a couple days ago. And so I'd love to have a baked pear with like the caramel sauce on it. I'm going to say chocolate souffle because we can't be samey-samey on all of these. Yeah. Well, well, good. There's some. Well, you can share those two, though, if you get them both. That's okay. That's actually what I was thinking. <laughs> I love to share dessert. Okay. my my. Well, the next one is cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. I like dessert. Okay. Again, sharing. And um, Manhattan or Brooklyn? Um, For me, Manhattan. Yeah, I would have to say Manhattan too. Although I used to live in Brooklyn and there's a lot of, we have a lot of good friends there and a lot of good stuff going on, but um, Manhattan's still where it's at. Awesome. That was the game. Very fun. Love, love your reasonings behind things too. Um, so for industry news this week, um, actually have sad industry news that we, we lost a good one in the industry. Uh, the New York Times covered this. Their article is entitled, Ed Schoenfeld, impresario of Chinese cuisine, dies at 72. He helped introduce New Yorkers to the breadth of Chinese regional food with a series of top-rated Manhattan restaurants in the 1970s and 80s. And this was by William Grimes. So yeah, Ed Schoenfeld, Eddie Schoenfeld, uh, the owner of Red Farm and Decoy, in New York City and beyond, uh, passed away on Friday. It was the cause was liver cancer. Um, this piece, I thought the New York Times wrote as a tribute to him. I thought it was really, really wonderful. There's a lot in there about Ed's background, his long history working in the hospitality industry, and um, he's just he's been a huge part of the hospitality and restaurant culture here and beyond. Um, I knew him personally. Uh, he's been on the show, and um, I've uh, also been been out to his house in Newark before, um, which I, I might share. I'm going to share a little more about um, in my solo dining experience. But um, it was very sad. Uh, did you guys um, Did you guys know Ed? I know I have met him several times in New York um, because of the nature of. Our family, we tended to go more towards French restaurants, but um, but I was, I know I I know I interacted him with him at, in a few different places, and his knowledge was exceptional. But I think what I thought was the classiest was how there was never an intimidation factor asking him a question because he never put anyone down for their lack of knowledge. And I think that that is the classiest thing that somebody in any industry can do. You know, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or anything else, when somebody asks a question that you find so, so silly that somebody wouldn't know. I had a roommate that didn't know that dark meat and white meat were on the same chicken because she had only eaten chicken parts. So, you know, when I asked a question like that about Chinese food, you was always very nice <laughs> and told me. Yeah, no, it's true. Well. And and that there's something there there's something just wonderful about that. Yes, probably do Yeah, I, I didn't know him personally, but I am a very sensitive to what's going on in the Chinese Asian community and restaurants right at the moment. It's, it was just, um, you know, trauma upon trauma there as far as, you know, what the pandemic has done to um, this community of restaurateurs. And it's a, it's a very sad loss at this point for that community. And, you know, fortunately there are some great um, beacons that are, that are still out there and reminding us of, of the importance of, of uh, Chinese cuisine 
In fact, Jacques, it, Jacques is a huge, huge fan of Chinese cuisine. He, he has said me, on many occasions that uh, Chinese cuisine is actually more complex and more nuanced than French cuisine, which I think if uh, most people would be surprised to hear him say that, but he absolutely believes it. Um, and I, I'm just really pleased to see um, some folks like Grace Young out there supporting the, the Chinese restaurant community at this point. It, they really they really need our help. And, and we love Chinese food and we, and and hopefully they'll uh, they'll come through this. Yeah, as well as the entire Asian community that we should be supporting at this point as much as we possibly can. Yes, yes, true. And, and yeah, this, I mean, he was, I mean, Ed was what people would say an unlikely ambassador of, of Chinese cuisine. I mean, he's a Jewish guy, you know, it wasn't like he, um, I, I don't know. I think, I, I think his knowledge though, as soon as you got him speaking and he liked to tell stories, um, he was tremendously knowledgeable and passionate and kind. And he was, and, um, a wonderful entrepreneur, restaurateur. He was so giving. People always call him a mensch. Um, so, uh, yeah, my sincerest condolences to his wife, Elisa, and his son, Eric, and entire family. It's it's really, it's sad news um, that I know there's been a lot of tributes online about it. Uh, so, uh, but if, if people want to learn more about his history, um, uh, read this New York Times piece. I thought it was really well done. And uh, on that note, I'm going to segue into my solo dining experience because I just decided to keep this uh, a little, do a little tribute. And uh, I went to, well, I didn't go to Red Farm. This solo dining experience is a little different this week. I did a solo delivery. So here's the rundown. The location, it's 529 Hudson Street near West 10th in the West Village, New York City. And Red Farm also has locations on the Upper West Side, on Broadway and 77th. And they're also now in London. Um, and believe it or not, I mean, the one in the Upper West Side is closer to where I live, but the one doing delivery was the West Village location. So that's where I ordered from. And the concept is a farm-to-table restaurant with an array of Pan-Asian dishes that Ed had said were unbashedly inauthentic, and that was from the New York Times piece. Uh, the owner, Ed Schoenfeld, and his business partner, Jeffrey Chatteroy, and the dim sum master is Joe Ng. So why did I do delivery? Well, Saturday night, it was 14 degrees out in New York City, about like three is what the, t the weather told me. Um, I was basically home and hibernating, thinking of Ed and love Red Farm, so I decided it felt good to order in, and that's what I did. My experience, uh, I ordered through Caviar and uh, uh, they had, that's, uh, they, they deliver really from restaurants all across the city in different, like you don't have to necessarily be in the neighborhood. There are big fees involved though uh, when you do that, but I figured it was worth it. Um, took about 45 minutes from my order to arrive. The cool thing with the app is that you could actually see the delivery person on their route so you know exactly when they're going to arrive and it did arrive about 45 minutes later. So what did I get? Well, I got his Ed's signature Red Farm pastrami egg roll. I also got snow pea and shrimp pea leaf dumplings, and I got three chili chicken. My take, it was all delicious. This pastrami egg roll is quite something if you've never had it. It comes with a, a, a special honey mustard type sauce, and it's just delicious. Um, the dumplings, I love. I love these uh, snow pea and shrimp uh, dumplings. They're, they're just the ample pieces of shrimp. They're really tasty. And the chicken was great. It had a little bit of heat, um, very flavorful. The only thing missing was it didn't come with rice, which was a little surprised. Um, I was okay without it, but usually, usually when we're Chinese food, you know, the rice, there's always more rice than you need, but, um, they didn't, not at Red Farm, just FYI. The ambiance, it was comfort of my home, perfect for dinner with friends. So you could share a lot. Interesting tidbit. One of Red Farm's other signature dishes that they're known for is their Pac-Man shrimp dumplings, which I didn't get this time, but they're a classic. So first timers, if you go get the get the Pac-Man dumplings, and I'd also say definitely try this uh, pastrami egg roll because they're they're quite unique. Personal fun fact. So in the summer of 2014, Ed had invited me along with some other friends to his home in Newark, New Jersey. And his home is actually a four-story mansion. It was like, I got a whole tour of the place. It was unbelievable. His whole, I mean, it was like, it was a museum. It was a 
the backyard. I, I couldn't believe he lived there. Um, and he called it a hot dog picnic. He cooked more than just hot dogs, but it was it was quite it was quite a lovely afternoon. Um, and 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 he's a great cook. I mean, he did he did the cooking, so it was really special. Another memory I have is uh, one time I stopped by Decoy, which is the restaurant in the basement of Red Farm in West Village. Um, uh, and Ed was there, and we ended up sitting down and sharing Peking duck together, which was really nice. Um, if people want to listen to my episode with him, it's episode eighty five, which we did in two thousand fifteen. Um, and I always cherish knowing him and his generosity. I feel very lucky. The cost of this meal was $64. That's not including a service fee tax or a gratuity. Um, so I, I don't, I don't do delivery that much. I usually go out or do takeout, but you know, the convenience of it, you're paying for that, but I'd say it was worth it, especially this time. Would I go back? Yes. Next time I'll go in person and their website is redfarmnyc.com, Instagram at redfarm. And um, by, you know, rest in peace, Ed, I, great to know you. So there's my little tribute. Um, okay. Have you, and uh, it's time for the final question, but you guys, um, uh, have you, have you been to Red Farm before or Decoy? Yes? No, we haven't. You haven't. All right. There you go. There are my tips for you. I love <laughs> it. Whenever we actually have time one day, I hope. Maybe we'll just rent a, an apartment in New York for like a month and just eat out every night. That would be so fun. Yeah. Well, as a solo person, single in the city that dines out a lot, I guess that's kind of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Will not be. It's, a, it's, it's not so good on the wallet, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So. Terrific. Okay. So it's time for the final question. My next guest is Beatrice Stein. She's a New York City-based restaurant consultant and strategist and founder and CEO of Beatrice Stein Hospitality Consulting, which uh, she does training the next generation of service professionals. That's her tagline. So Claudine Raleigh, can you please ask a question for Beatrice? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting time for food service and for restaurants in general. Uh, I'm for my students. I have, uh, you know, um, a comment for them about uh, what's changed in the restaurant industry with regards to uh, service, but also you know how COVID has affected everything. Uh, my question for your next guest would be. Um, as you look forward into the future, how is service going to change over the next few years? Because I think that uh, the demand for great food is not going to change and the supply is not going to change, but I feel like the service model is going to change. So what are we going to be looking toward when we think of service in the, in the food service industry over the next decade? I like it. Great question. Claudine, any, anything from you? Or should we just ask her one? Oh, just ask her one. Raleigh and I talked about this um, okay. prior. We, we were thinking about it because it's true. Are restaurants going to use more technology in order to, to automate service so that they you have less interaction? Are restaurants going to be smaller so that um, they can, can work more easily and have less people under the same mm -hmm. roof? I mean, so I, I think that Raleigh's question in, in, a, in a broad sense is, is really the right one to be asking now. Terrific. Um, it's a great question. I will find out. And thank you guys so much. That's the show. I love chatting with you. I wish you the best moving forward. I hope we get to see each other in person and congratulations on everything you've done with the Jacques Pepin foundation. It's really, it's really fabulous. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you so much to you and your team for having us, having us on the show and, and spending time with us. And just so you know, you're spending time with us in our kitchen. So thank you very much. And we hope you have a great evening. 
and apparently our puppy too in the background. So, (laughs) but we're really, really grateful to be on the show. We think you do a great, great job. And thanks for keeping the industry news out there front and center for everybody to stay abreast of. It's really, really great work that you do. And we appreciate you having us on. Uh, Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You guys are great. And I'm so glad you met through the industry. I love that. I love that. So my guests today have been Claudine Pepin, the co-founder and president of the Jacques Pepin Foundation, and Raleigh Wiesen, the co-founder and executive director of the Jacques Pepin Foundation. Their website is jp.foundation. Go check it out and follow them on social media at Jacques Pepin Foundation. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry and my website's BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Kevin. And thanks again to Claudine and Raleigh. And thanks to their publicist, Juliana. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I will be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.